My name is Andrew Bellingen. Uh, for my sins, I used to be an examiner. Um, and this session is really uh, talking about preparation for the exams, um, what the examiners are looking for, and um, really to be fair, things that we see a lot that candidates should stop doing if they want to pass. Um, so I will file that under how not to and how not to Okay, so um, so Winston Churchill once said about government that this democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been. And that's um, true of the examination as well. So, you know, it's not the ideal way to test knowledge. Um, but it is the one that we have. Um, so let's talk about the examination system. So we take this very seriously. And there's actually a, a very rigorous process um, involved in the examination. So when it comes to setting papers, um, our staff, our handbooks are on the UK, um, let me just check something. Our standards and handbooks are based on the UK um, ones. That's for setting as well as marking. Um, for each subject, there's at least two examiners. Um, so a chief examiner and then an assistant examiner. Um, they all set a paper. Um, based on the handbook, based on guidelines, and based on the syllabus that they have to examine. Um, that paper then gets checked. So first it will go off to guinea pigs. Um, these are normally people who recently did pass the paper, um, and they'll give feedback such as, you know, this question wasn't clear to me, um, I think the paper was too long, that kind of thing. Um, and then the scrutineers would be practice area experts, um, and they'll make sure that everything is correct, that the paper is up to standard, um, and give similar feedback. And then the papers get sent to the UK moderators. Um, so keep in mind that the standard of the papers is important because if the standards drop below acceptable levels, then the mutual recognition agreements that we have with other um, actuarial professional bodies would fall away. Um, right, so once all of that's done, we hand in the paper, it goes, and, and you write it. Um, so when we're marking, each paper is marked independently by two, exam, uh, two markers. Those may be the examiners. Um, and after we've marked independently, we'll get together and we'll discuss differences. So that could be differences um, between question results. Like, you know, in general, I got better scores on this question than you did. Or why did you give this candidate so, so many marks when I got a completely different result? And we'll 
we'll work through those issues and make sure that we mark everyone consistently. It's also at this stage that we'll go through and any valid comments that were made by candidates that we didn't think of, um, we'll consider the merits and we'll include it in the marking schedule. Um, when it comes to borderline cases, we'll mark a third time um, just to make sure that we are comfortable where the mark is set. Um, and I should point out borderline candidates doesn't just mean um, pass or fail. So we may look at someone for whom the difference um, is between an FA and an FB um, because we understand that, you know, the feedback that you get from the grade is, is very important. Um, when it comes to passing, one of the criteria we use is whether we're satisfied that the candidate has demonstrated that they um, are competent to practice as a fellow, right? So remember that passing this exam basically means that you get a seal of approval that you have the skills and knowledge um, to practice as an actuary. I'm talking specifically about the F200 papers. Um, the Board of Examiners will then meet and discuss various issues. Um, it could be things like um, pass marks. It could be the reports that we get from the exam venue. Um, you know, things like the power went off and all the computers rebooted. Um, there was noise outside the venue. We'll consider all of that. Um, and then we'll send um, our examiner's report and the results and some borderline um, papers to the UK as well. And they'll check whether the standards are okay, whether we set the pass mark appropriately, um, look at the pass rates and similar. Um, so the reason I highlight this is because I, I, I'd like you to understand that we take this very seriously, right? Every examiner was once upon a time an actuarial candidate setting these exams, right? And we know what's at stake um, when it comes to passing. Um, right. So question, how many of you are writing F200? F100, um, any other subjects? Okay, I didn't expect so. So obviously as you progress through the exam, um, the nature of the papers change and the subject matter. Um, you know, so when you start out, especially on the core technical things, you know, it's more exact, it's more technical, um, and there's explicitly right or wrong answers, right? If I told you to um, find the value of X or prove a theorem or something like that, um, it's either right or it's wrong. But obviously, as you move through the exams, it changes. So you will get to a point where um, you have to apply more judgment, right? Um, the style of the solutions that you have to hand in are more um, essay styles, right? So more wordy. Um, and what you'll also find is that there are gray areas in some of these questions, and I'll, I'll touch on that a bit later. 
Okay. So when we're testing knowledge, and here I'm using knowledge in the in the wider context, um, a guy called Bloom had this hierarchy of um, of thinking skills, right? So right at the bottom is just knowledge, right? And basically, it's your ability to recall. So um, I guess at the basic level, that's memorizing the bookwork, okay? Um, and then there's comprehension, which means that you can actually, you know, you understand what you studied. You didn't just um, make a copy of it in your mind. Um, so application is where you use that knowledge, usually in new circumstances. Um, so if you think about it, you know, when you were learning math, um, you were taught using like certain examples and you practiced using certain examples, but you don't expect that the math problems that you're going to get in the exam will be those problems, right? They'll be new ones because we're not testing your ability to memorize the math. We're testing your ability to apply it. Um, okay. Analysis is where we give you a lot of information and we expect you to take it apart, sort the information, discover relationships, um, and generally understand what's going on. And synthesis is where you then put everything back together again um, to create something new. And then evaluation would be passing judgment on something. Um, we'll, we'll go through some examples of, of those. Um, right. So I found these quotes. Um, the first one is maybe a bit harsh, but it says, you know, luck is for people with no talent or ability. Um, perhaps more positively, luck favors the prepared. Um, so there are basically two reasons why candidates fail, right, on the, on the high level. Number one, they're not prepared. Um, number two is poor exam technique, and we'll get to that. Right, so in preparing for the exam, there the are different aspects of that. So when I'm talking about readiness, um, basically before you attempt this exam, you need to evaluate your readiness. Um, you know, and that could be as simple as, will I have enough time to study? Um, when it comes to the higher level exams, specifically F200, we prefer that candidates sit it after about a year of work experience. It's possible to pass it um, straight out of university, but that's extremely rare. Um, and I think it's a bit, you know, the height of hubris to think that you can beat the odds. Keep in mind that the... Um, Average pass rate for F200 exams currently is around a third. Um, so most candidates who sit it do not pass. Um, and we'll get into most of the reasons for that, but one of them is um, simply not being ready. So when I talk about experience, you know, we, we don't expect you to have like gray hair like me. Um, what we're actually talking about is having actually worked. So as an example, you know, I've seen people who knew all the theory about stochastic models, um, but who had obviously never built one. Um, and there's also like the, 
a level of common sense that you pick up with experience. Um, you know, another thing in terms of readiness is that um, we really don't recommend attempting F200 if you haven't passed the equivalent F100. Um, so, you know, you'll hear stories about people who passed F200 before they passed F100. Um, that may happen because they're set and marked independently, um, but it's not the rule. Okay. So planning is about plan, planning how you'll study, right? So this is things like um, blocking out your study leave in your calendar. So, you know, you'll know how much study leave you get. Um, most employers have a rule that they don't want you to take it all um, before the, just before the exam, um, so you need to plan ahead. Um, planning would also be something like, you know, I need to be finished with mo Module 2 by this date. Um, and that's very important. And then, of course, there's studying. Um, so a shocking number of candidates just... You know, they don't know the basic bookwork. Um, for example, you know, not knowing the most important aspects of the regulation in your practice area. Um, and there's just no excuse for that. Um, so, as I've said, you know, the F subjects are application subjects. Um, they're not knowledge subjects in the sense that um, we're not testing your ability to turn yourself into a hard drive, um, but you have to have the base knowledge. Knowing all, having all the knowledge and being able to reproduce it won't mean that you'll pass. But if you don't know it, then you're already at a disadvantage compared to the other candidates. Right, and then practicing, right? Because this is an application thing and you need to practice. And there's two parts to practicing. The first part, obviously, is practicing, practicing answering questions and solutions and tackling problems. Um, the second aspect is tackling exam technique, which is like an additional skill that you need to have. So remember when we said, you know, exams are the worst form except for all the others. Um, because it is an exam and because there are certain rules like limited time, um, you need to master another set of skills which relates to sitting an exam. Um, now, most candidates struggle with exam technique. Most of the ones who come to me for counseling, um, you can identify clear problems with exam technique. Um, if you read some of these comments, um, you'll, you'll see some of the problems, right? So, unable to apply their minds to a problem, making superficial observations or just reproducing the core material, um, can't generate enough points for longer questions. Um, my personal bugbear, candidates do not read questions thoroughly and completely before starting the answer. Um, and that would seem obvious to you, um, but it's a common problem. Um, an inability to apply theory to practical problems, poor knowledge of the bookwork, um, a lack of structure in submissions presented, 
Um, okay. So we're going to discuss a couple of components um, to good exam technique. Core to that is understanding what the examiners want, right? Because if you get that wrong, everything else you do don't, doesn't matter. Um, we're going to talk about points generation, um, which is, um, you know, the actual exercise of attracting marks. Um, we're going to talk about time management because a lot of candidates struggle with time. Um, and then there's just some common sense things that, that I think that everyone should apply. Right, so you've studied, um, you've gone to the exam venue, you've sat down, you've got your clock and your calculator and your can of Red Bull and some sweets, I don't know. Um, I personally never had time for snacks. Um, and they hand out the paper and write your 15 minutes of reading time starts now. So you turn it over and you look at it and your reaction is something like this. You've never seen anything like this before. Um, and you have no idea where to start. Um, so that, you know, what, what do these people expect? me to do here? Did they expect me to know this? Um, right, so the, to the last que question, the answer is yes, they did, right? We'll never set you questions in the exam that we wouldn't expect someone who prepared properly um, to have difficulty with. Okay, so you st start tackling a question. Don't do this, <laughs> right? So, so what do I mean with this? Um, so we'll talk about cookie-cutter solutions later, right? But what we often see is candidates saw a keyword, right? And then they just dive in and they write whatever came up in terms of that keyword that may be relevant. You know, you saw pricing, um, and so you start writing about pricing. Um, but then that's not actually what the examiners asked, right? Um, and so you won't get the marks. Um, so what do you do actually in this situation? So the first rule is do not panic. Right. Um, take a breath. Deconstruct the question. Right to break it down into manageable chunks. Use your reading time. Plan your answers to longer questions, and prioritize. So what do I mean with prioritize? Um, our candidates have different approaches, but basically what we mean and what we recommend is that. You looking at the paper, you'll identify like the difficult questions, right? And the, and you'll see the easy ones, like the easy book work questions, right? Or the straightforward application question. So we recommend that you do those first. Um, so there's a couple of reasons, right? Um, the one is it'll calm you down, right? Because it's like, I got this. 
Um, the other thing is that the easy to get marks you should bank, right? I've seen candidates who failed because they didn't finish, and what they didn't finish was like easy questions, right? And if they'd not spent too much time on the difficult question and actually done that, they may have just crossed that threshold to get the higher grade. Um, okay. So when we're talking about deconstructing the question, um, we'll work through an example, but basically, you know, be systematic and analytical. Look at the question, right? What's the instruction? Um, by instruction, we're normally talking about the command verbs. Um, so list, discuss, explain. Um, what's the problem at hand, right? How does this fit into the context provided? Um, and are there any special directions? Um, right, so context would be what we'd call the preamble. So all that text before the numbered parts of the questions. Um, right, and when we talk about context, there'll be some information, right? So the first thing you need to know is nothing in there will be irrelevant. We're not going to put red herrings in the preamble, in the context that we present to you. But all of the information isn't always going to be relevant in every part of the question. We expect you to be able to judge which parts are relevant where. Okay. And special directions we'll, we'll get to, but that's basically things like um, show your calculation steps and list your assumptions. Um, so I used to be examiner for F201, which is health and care. So I hope you'll forgive me that um, a lot of the examples are healthcare biased. Um, right, so here's a question. Um, just read it. You are a healthcare actuary consulting to a restricted scheme, FruitMed, which provides covers for the employees of Fruit Incorporated. FruitMed has two options, apple and orange that both have traditional benefit designs, but with Apple having more generous benefits and higher contributions. Both options have income-based contribution tables. Okay, so that's the context. Now you get to a question part. So part three says, discuss the factors that you would need to consider when designing the new merged option. Okay, so let's deconstruct the question. Discuss, right? You should discuss. Don't explain, don't list, don't summarize. Discuss. Um, these are what we call the command verbs. Okay, so you'll um, have seen these lists. Um, I know that a while back the society circulated like a document that summarized a lot of these command verbs. Um, so list, you know, give me a bulleted list of things. Um, state, you know, give me a sentence or, or two of explanation. Explain, define something and explain what it is. Um, outline would be provide a brief explanation, but it could be something like outline the report, 
that you would prepare. So we don't say write the actual report, right? Because this isn't communications, but it could be something like um, what are the headings and sections that I would need to include in my report. Um, and then discuss would be something like provide a balanced view, looking at both sides. Um, we would also, um, so often the word discuss is followed by the words discuss the merits, right? You've been presented with something and you're being asked, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Um, okay. Now it's very important that you answer the question. Um, and when we say answer the question, we mean answer the question. So what must we do? Answer the question. Um, and we're not deliberately trying to trick you. Right? A lot of thought goes into having the explanation of what you should do be as clear as possible to get you to the solutions that we are looking for. Okay, back to the question. Okay, so I have to discuss. What must I discuss? I must discuss the factors that I would need to consider when the task that needs to be performed is I need to design a merged option. So basically we're going to take apple and orange and we're going to make some other fruit. Um, and there are various considerations to that. Um, okay, then there's a mark allocation and this will tell you how long your solutions should be but it will also tell you what kind of um, solution it should be um, and, and we'll discuss that a bit later okay now of all this information that was provided what's relevant um, so i've highlighted a bunch of things here okay you are a healthcare actuary consulting. Okay, so what does that mean? It means you're not directly involved. You're an outside party providing independent advice. To whom? To the restricted scheme. Okay, and this will frame issues that you need to know, such as what do I have access to in terms of data and other information? Um, to whom is my responsibility when giving advice? Um, and you need to consider that. Um, okay, there are two options, so obviously we need to know that. They have traditional benefit designs, which means they don't have medical savings account. Um, Apple is the more generous, and they have income-based contribution tables. Okay, so all of this is relevant to some aspect of the discussion that you now need to have. Um, it would also tell you what you shouldn't be talking about, right? So if we're talking about a restricted scheme, which means that you have to meet some kind of condition to belong to this medical scheme, um, then a lot of points that relate to open medical schemes like discovery um, or, you know, bonitas would be irrelevant and won't attract marks, so you'll know not to actually go there. Um, okay, now there comes the task of generating points. Um, and I want to be clear here, when I say generating points, I mean writing down things that will attract the marks, right? 
Um, because as we'll see, um, just writing a lot isn't going to work. Um, now, we've, there's a lot of comments in the examiner's reports, um, basically along the same theme, right? So most candidates struggle to generate enough distinct points for a 14-mark question. Um, many candidates fail to touch on one or more of the important issues, such as PPFM, asset shares, solvency, etc., and as such did not generate the necessary detail for those issues. Many candidates did not provide sufficient detail to display understanding of the issues at hand. Um, poorer candidates reproduced the list of benefit design considerations that attracted a few core marks but struggled to generate additional points. So the last one um, came from an application question. Okay. So there's the book work in the core reading that says, you know, here are a bunch of benefit design considerations. Um, and that's the knowledge that you need to start with. And most candidates could write them down. That's the knowledge part. But what we wanted was that candidates apply that knowledge to the specific scenario that was being presented to them. And a lot of them just couldn't. Okay. Um, so how do we generate marks? Um, so the first one is generating ideas. Um, so, you know, this could be mind maps um, of ideas. So you can generate like a lot of things that may be relevant. Um, then you need to filter what's relevant to this solution. Um, Another way to generate additional points is give me an example, right? Show me that you actually understand the concept that you're discussing here. Define your terms. Um, if there's an issue, display your understanding of the order of magnitude, right? So some factors may be more important that, than others. Um, and if you can see that, tell me. Um, will the result likely be significant or not? Um, is it not possible to say, right? And then we get to the other area of actuarial pra practice, which is talking about risk and uncertainty. Um, do the numbers appear reasonable, right? Um, so if you had to calculate like an average reserve value per um, policyholder for like, you know, very basic stuff and you get to like a million rand. Okay, something's wrong. I don't have time to go back and figure what it is, but I can see that this is wrong. Let's write that down. Um, right, and then give a balanced view. So fellowship is not always about, you know, exactly right or exactly wrong. Um, and we like to test the gray areas. Um, so a lot of the questions like the application and higher order questions that you'll see in an exam paper um, would have some combination of change, right? So the status quo is changing, right? And we want you to demonstrate that you understand what the effects of those changes and the implications are going to be. Um, the other part that you'll often see in exam questions is conflict, right? 
Um, so think about sales versus underwriting, right? They have very important jobs, but they have conflicting objectives. Okay? So you may be presented with a problem and you need to discuss both sides, right? Because like a business that doesn't have sales won't grow. Right? But on the other hand, if you grow fast with poor risks, then you're setting yourself up for problems. Um, so that's what we mean with a balanced view. Um, the other thing with the, um, that I want to mention here, and um, I've noticed this a few times, is a lot of candidates when asked to discuss risks, right, only consider bad things happening, right? So on, on the one hand, we're trained to do, do this, right? So sales don't meet targets, um, investments underperform, um, we have a bad claims year, um, the market tanks, those kinds of things. Um, but we also need you to consider upside risks. Because it could be, and again, these are complicated situations. Yay, we're growing, right? And we know it's profitable business, but we've got new business strain. Okay? So unless we specifically narrow the scope of the question to just bad risks, we'd like you to discuss all the risks. Um, okay. And then for clear bookwork questions, right? And here I'm talking about define, explain, list. Just do that, right? So if I say um, list the different kinds of disability insurance, um, then I just want a list. I don't want you to explain what they are, um, in another example, we had a question where the task was pretty straightforward and it's pure book work, right? So explain the current tax regime as it applies to medical scheme contributions um, in the hands of, cons of members, um, medical schemes and providers, um, which we thought was a pretty easy question because it like I said, you know, the model solution was basically copied straight out of the notes. Um, but a lot of people ignored the clues, right? So when I say the current tax regime, just explain the way things work now. A lot of people wasted time because they were explaining the history of where the tax regime came from and how it's changed in the past. Some of them discussed current proposals how it may change in future, okay? Um, and we don't care. Some of them discussed things like how are medical scheme administrator fees taxed, right? But I didn't want that. I wanted to know about contributions and benefits. Um, and then when I said, you know, members medical schemes and providers, oh, I think employers was the other one. What we didn't, weren't looking for was, you know, um, how are brokers taxed? Um, it just wasn't relevant, so there's no point writing about it. Um, and there's no point in embellishing. Okay, 
let's talk about interpreting mark allocations, right? So are these the same question? So superficially, yes. But in terms of the solution that we expect, they're very different, right? So what is an actuary for three marks? Right? You'll have to be very brief. You'll have to cover the most important parts. Right? So it could be things like, you know, it's a professional who's qualified. Um, we work with risks, long-term, um, asset liabilities, um, probabilistic thinking. Um, okay, right? So that's very high level. Um, for eight marks, you'd expand on those things, right? So you could maybe talk about, okay, um, what are the practice areas? Um, how do you qualify? So you might discuss things like, um, you know, accredited universities, exemptions, writing the exams, work-based skills. These are all relevant. Um, and then for 25 marks, we'd expect a lot of detail. Right, right down to discussing things like, I don't know, professional and following guidance notes, the different kinds of life actuaries. Um, right? and, and what would happen a lot is that as you move down, the points that you made in the first question would become headings in the second one. Right? And the additional points you made in the second one would become subheadings in the last one where you need to generate 25 marks. So typically a point, right? So a valid statement that attracts marks is worth half a mark in these exams. Okay, so how many things do you need to write down to get full marks on this question? The last one, it's 50, right? So that's a lot of detail. Um, just to show on some level, you know, what I'm talking about, um, let's say under the areas of practice heading. So I didn't complete it because then I just got like a, a hierarchy that where you can't read the words. Um, <clears throat> so we could have health and care, right? And then you could go into the details of, well, in health and care, we work with medical schemes. We work in health insurance products. So... Um, for those of you who know, on the other side of the demarcation line, um, we, you could work for providers and managed care. Maybe you could work um, in the public health area. Um, you know, similarly with life insurance, you could have product development. You could have valuations. There are statutory roles, um, and as you move. You know, you basically expand on the detail to fill in the questions. Okay, so question, is this a difficult question? It seems daunting, doesn't it? Okay, but actually it's not. And I'll show you why. So... Generating ideas. Describe the universe giving examples, right? It means that you could almost discuss anything, right? You can discuss what is the universe. Well, it's the thing that contains everything. What's in it? Galaxies, 
stars, solar systems, planets, asteroids. Um, you know, there's a lot to discuss. Um, so this is actually an easy question because it doesn't limit your scope, right? Whereas if I said describe Earth, a lot of the points that you could have made won't be valid. Um, closer to home, you know, discuss what is an insurer. Um, is it life? Is it general? You know, is it motor? Um, are we talking of annuities? What are the business functions within an insurer? What's the regulations? Um, okay, what's a non-life insurer? Right, so I guess medical schemes would be, they function the same way as friendly societies, so they're a kind of a non-life insurer. Um, discuss a small non-life insurer, right? Um, so now we're limiting the scope. Um, and obviously a small non-life insurer would have um, different challenges from a very large one. Um, okay, very specifically, you know, discuss a small new non-life insurer specializing in the niche professional liability cover for actuaries. Okay, so two important parts here. So what must I describe and what's excluded from the scope? Okay, and I would say that this last one is more difficult, right? Because you have to be very specific. Um, okay, so we'll, in terms of generating ideas, um, there's this idea of what doesn't the question state? Because right? um, sometimes some detail won't be given to you in the exam question. Right? So if I didn't tell you it's a South African life insurer, right, don't limit your answer. Don't assume that it's a South African life insurer. Right? Um, because you might be missing important aspects. Um, in the medical scheme environment, we could maybe not have told you that it was an open scheme or a restricted scheme. Um, there was another example where um, candidates were asked to calculate um, an amount, um, and the amount was intended to compensate a bunch of employees for insurance cover that they would lose. So basically, you know, here's some extra money, go self-insure. Um, but we didn't state the method, right? So there were a lot of marks for thinking about different ways you could calculate this. And then what are the implications of each? What are the difficulties? What data would I need? All those things. Um, and the good candidates could do that, right? The poor ones struggled. Um, so consider what, what isn't given to you, right? Don't make hard assumptions if you don't have to that limit the scope of your answer. Um, and really consider the alternatives. Um, so a lot of you have probably heard the saying, you know, um, a good actuarial answer always starts with it depends, right? And this is what I'm talking about. Um, these are the gray areas. If you don't know things, then it depends. 
and that's where the marks lie. Um, and this also gets your mind into action of thinking about the alternatives. Um, okay. So in terms of generating points, let's talk about the idea of an idea generating toolbox, right? So you need ways to come up with ideas when you're answering a question. Um, I've listed a couple of examples here, like from the most basic, you know, just ask who, what, when, why, where, and how. Um, those of you who've written investments will recognize system T, right, which is basically a mnemonic device for, um, with each letter representing some aspect that you need to consider in your typical investment question. Um, think about the business functions in your area, right? So sales, claims processing, underwriting, um, valuations, um, you know, if you think about these things, then you won't miss that relevant part of the question being asked. Um, financial statements are often a useful one, right? So, sorry, I'm going back to the medical scheme example. Um, so the lines would be contribution income, less claims, um, which give you, you know, a gross healthcare result, less non-healthcare and other expenses, um, which could give you a net healthcare result, add investment income, and that would give you a net result. Right? So as we move down, if you think about contributions, what determines contributions? Well, how many members you have, contribution rates, um, think about things like lapse rates, um, contribution or pricing structure, right? So just from that line, I've generated a bunch of things that I need to think about. Um, as I'm working through the issues. Similarly with claims, what determines claims? Well, benefits, utilization, um, price, um, you get what I mean, okay? Um, okay, and then the actuarial control cycle. Um, so it's it's... You know, it's so simple. And I guess a lot, lot of the time people ask, like, you know, why is this even still being included in the notes? Um, well, the reason is because it's a very useful way of thinking about actuarial problems. Right? And if you think about it, it gives you areas that you need to consider, right? So the current environment, um, regulation, competition, um, all those matters. Okay, specify the problem, develop a solution, monitor. A lot of people forget to monitor, right? Um, and then professionalism would be things like, well, professional considerations, but also things like, you know, did you consider the guidance note? Um, or maybe even something like the DCS. Um, stakeholder maps can also be useful, right? It's another way of making sure you don't forget someone. Um, so a stakeholder map may start with, okay, talking about the insurer. Who are the stakeholders, right? Brokers, policyholders, um, preferred providers. So, in, you know, if you're talking about motor, then it would be like our network of panel beaters. Um, who else? The regulator, right? Um, 
our competitors? Um, what about potential customers? Right. So as you work through the stakeholder map, you make sure that you don't miss someone who may be involved in the problem. Um, right. And then the final one is really a simple one, right? But the notes that you get given have headings, like section headings and chapter headings, right? And they exist because they group concepts together. Um, at the very start of your notes, there'll be a list of syllabus objectives. Um, and they're also very useful um, because they give you an idea of what's actually being tested. Um, so, you know, idea generation toolboxes are really just ways to make sure that you think around all the issues. Um, and, it, and, and it's good to have these, right? But you need to practice using them. Um, we'll discuss that a bit later on. Um, okay, so the next thing is, and a lot of people miss this, right? But there's the art of stating the obvious. Um, okay, so what, what the hell are you talking about, Andre? Um, okay, so there's this important distinction, right? Let's say you have two actors talking and they talk about Sam. Right? They both know what they're talking about, right? But what if you were talking to another party um, who doesn't necessarily understand the issues? Um, then, you know, you need to state the relevant issues. Um, it's also probably good at this point not to use jargon and to actually define your acronyms. Okay. Um, okay. So here's an example, right? So the statement is, the scheme will lose young and healthy members, which is undesirable. It's true. But what if your audience isn't an actuary? What if it's a marketing director or a trustee? Okay, then you need to explain, well, if you do this thing, the scheme will lose young and healthy members. Old people claim more than the young members. So if we lose them, the average claim rate will increase. Schemes are community-rated, right? Which means that everyone pays the same contribution on the same benefit option, right? So if the average claims go up, then the average contributions need to go up as well. And that would be undesirable, right? So the difference here is probably you know, a lot more marks attracted than that first statement. Um, okay. Um, I don't know if any of you like Top Gear fans, but you'll probably have seen, you know, that Je Jeremy Clarkson used to fix everything with a hammer. Um, but let me explain what I mean with this. Um, there are these things called cookie-cutter solutions, right? So basically, regardless of your the practice area that you're writing the exam in, um, most candidates have like a pricing and a reserving solution that they have memorized because it's in the core reading, right? Um, the problem is that... Well, okay, so there are two problems. 
The one is that they'll just write down exactly what's in the core reading, right, with absolutely no um, differentiation or application to the current problem. Um, the other one is that they'll often just recognize a keyword and distort like the pricing methodology to try and fit this question, right? Um, which isn't really a, a good strategy. So, so for example, right, um, if we're looking at a pricing one, um, okay, you could list data required. Uh, in healthcare, that could be like 20 different fields. Um, that list your data sources, discuss time periods, right? So you know this. It's like you need enough data to be credited, credible, but it has to be recent enough to um, be um, relevant. Um, look for trends, okay? Adjust for those trends. Um, look for demographic or risk changes. Um, adjust for inflation, allow for reinsurance, allow for expenses, allow for profit margins, allow for solvency um, or reserve building margins. Um, you could memorize all of that. Um, but that's only half the battle won. Um, so what we're looking for is your ability to apply. Um, okay. Before we get to some examples, let's talk about time management, right? Because that's another major issue is candidates run out of time. So this can take different forms. Like, So there's the obvious guy, you know, he di completely didn't answer question three. So he ran out of time. But it could be something like um, you left like a long question to last um, and then you only man manage to write like three things. And then um, in my time when you were writing exam, you had like a Scottish man yelling at you, pens down, people. Um, I guess in, in the modern age, it would be hands off keyboards. Okay, so why do people run out of time? So um, a very common one is responses that are too verbose. Um, so too wordy, um, you know, the, the concepts that you can get across without writing a whole paragraph. Um, okay, so, you know, you don't have to explain what inflation is and like where you would source like data on inflation and forecasts and, and all those things. Um, before you get to the point to tell me that you are going to adjust for future inflation. Um, the other side of that coin is don't be too brief. So don't just write inflation, okay, because it's not enough. What about inflation? Well, you need to adjust for it. Um, and what kind of inflation, right? You know, are we talking about CPI, claims inflation? Um, be, be specific, but you can just say, I need to adjust or CPI, and you've made the point, okay? Um, another reason candidates run out of time is because they spend way too much time on one question. Um, and part of that is a phenomenon that we call pray and sp spray and pray, um, and I'll explain later what that means. Um, and then one 
is paraphrasing the paper. So what do we mean there? It's basically writing down the question that we set you, like sometimes word for word. So I understand why people do that, right? Because as you write, your mind's processing what you're writing, and that helps you to think about it, okay? But it wastes time that you don't have. So it's a good idea to find another way to process that information. Um, okay. And then there's unstructured solutions. Um, so we'll often talk about um, the stream of consciousness. Um, we often see this in electronic papers, right? So the guy says, question two, part three, he starts a bullet list. And then it's just like, you know, every thought that comes out of his head gets typed onto the screen. Okay. Um, so your thoughts aren't structured. You're writing down a lot of things that I don't care about. Um, what often happens is that people who um, write this way repeat themselves, which is, again, wasting time that you don't have. Um, and then there's the problem of straying off topic, um, which, which is like a big problem with candidates. Okay, so let's talk about what you need to do with time management. So, you know, don't, don't bother being fancy. Like a lot of these comments, you know, date from a time when everything was handwritten, right? But don't underline. It wouldn't work anyway because the mark booklets are, are ruled, so I probably wouldn't see it. Don't use color pens. Okay? So the reason for that is we don't mark on your original script. Photocopies are made and we mark those. Um, so we probably wouldn't see the colors. Don't rule off answers, um, you know, and don't do stuff like crossing uh, or using tipex, you know, just draw a line through it. I can see you don't want me to mark that. Um, you know, don't make disparaging comments about the question, um, right? Because what's the point, A, and B, you're spending time on something that um, really won't help. Okay, so the other thing is that you need to manage your time. Um, and what comes in here is the 1.8 to 1 ratio. Um, right, so you have three hours to write an F200 paper, which is out of 100 marks, okay? which means you can spend roughly 1.8 minutes per mark that you're trying to generate. So how do you use this? Well, look at the mark allocation, right? And then set a time budget, right? So I have 40 minutes to spend on question one, okay? And then the rest. And then, and this is really important, keep to your timetable. Um, even if you think like you could still work on this, don't. Move on to the next question, right? Um, because A, it'll help you complete, um, and B, um, okay, so we'll talk about that next. Um, okay, so I said, you know, a bullet point with a stream of consciousness thing um, isn't good. That doesn't mean like bullet lists are bad. They're fine in the right context. 
Um, but as I said, don't be too cryptic, right? So not just inflation or regulation, um, but just, you know, make your point neatly and clearly. Um, okay, so that's a <laughs> typing error. It's try to be neat or at least leg legible. Um, okay. So back to the 1.8 to 1 thing, right? So why do you need to keep to your time budget? So the reason is because you run against this thing called the law of diminishing returns. So think about it. What are you going to do when you first start answering the questions? You're going to write the things that you definitely know, the easy stuff. Um, so when you start, you're getting like a lot of marks per minute, and that's great, right? But you'll like reach a peak, and then after that, there's sort of this declining rate of return on the amount of time you spend on a question, right? So you could sit and think of more ideas and spend a lot of time for like an additional half mark. It's not worth it, um, right? So when you reach that point, it's time to move on. Okay. Um, okay. They're writing the paper. Um, as I said, be concise, right? More words don't mean more points, right? So if we get a very short script, it either means that that person will definitely fail, right? Because they just didn't have enough to write, or that they were very much on target. They didn't have to write a lot to make their points, um, and they just got them. Um, as I said, bullet points are okay when it would make sense. Um, the better scripts are less wordy, um, right? So just think about the difference between someone giving a talk, right, who knows what they're talking about, versus someone who's just waffling, right? Um, another, a great example of this is, um, again, Winston Churchill was asked if he could talk um, in front of a bunch of people unprepared, and he asked, so how much time do I have? And they said, about an hour. Um, and he said, no, that's fine. Um, but if I only had 10 minutes, I would have had, needed a day to prepare. Um, okay, so, so take the message from that. Um, okay, this is important. Uh, the script does not need to contain the detail in the model solutions, right? So if you go to the, on the past paper section of the website, there's the past papers and then the examiner's reports. Um, and in that, there are model solutions for each of the questions. Now, they contain a lot of additional explanation, right? Because we want someone who's working through the paper later to understand, you know, why is this point relevant? What does this mean? You don't have to write all of that. Okay. So, and um, often um, there'll be a lot more points that are valid for marks than were actually available in the question, right? So like a simple bookwork question, you were asked to list things. It was five marks, so you had to write 10 things, but the marking solution has 15, okay? So it's great if you can remember them all, um, but just because there's 
you know, a marking solution um, is this long doesn't necessarily mean that's how much you need to write. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, and then, as I said, none of the facts in the question are irrelevant. Okay, so let's work through a real question. Um, this is our example of fruit med again. Um, okay, so the task was simple. If you'll remember, discuss the factors that you would consider when de designing an option which would merge apple and orange. Um, okay, so what in this can I generate marks from? Right, so I'm in consulting actuary. It's a closed scheme, right? Um, closed schemes have specific sets of challenges. Um, the employees of the company, there's some marks there. The two options, traditional, that has implications. Um, they have income-based contribution tables. There's like a number of issues that you would need to discuss. Okay. Then when you run out of ideas, say, well, it depends. And then, um, to ask questions. So you'll notice um, we didn't say whether this was a large restricted scheme or a small one. Um, so the solution I'm work looking for is, right, if FruitMed is a small restricted scheme, then, and write down a bunch of points. On the other hand, if it's a large scheme, then, and write down an, a bunch of other points, um, don't write, well, I assume that this is a small scheme, and then carry on from there, right? Because, again, you're going to miss a lot of marks. Um, then there's a question, is this a self-administered? medical scheme? Is there a third-party administrator involved? Um, are the, is the membership geographically concentrated or are they all over the country? Um, what about demographics? Um, so, you know, the risk profile, does it have, what's the average age look like? What does the pensioner rate, um, ratio looks like? Is this good or is it bad? Right, because depending on the answer, um, the application to the problem could be very different. Um, do you have high reserves, right? Which means you can take a lot of risks, um, you have space to grow because you can take new business strain, or do you have low reserves, right? Which could mean things like you have to manage your growth or um, you're unprofitable. Like, you know, how did you get to have low reserves in the first place? Um, it could mean that you have to take a more conservative investment strategy. Um, so, marks to generate. Is it loss-making or is it surplus-making? So, you know, is it profitable? Um, is membership of the medical scheme a condition of employment or not, right? So, this has to do with anti-selection risk. Um, because if it's a condition of employment, it's compulsory. So this individual choice aspect that creates a lot of anti-selective risk wouldn't apply then. On the other hand, if members had a choice of schemes, there'd be a lot of anti-selection risk. Um, are the employees subsidized, right? Um, which would have implications for um, post-retirement medical scheme valuations, um, affordability for the members um, and such aspects. 
um, does it provide subsidies after retirement? Um, so from a lot of things that's not there, we managed to generate talking points. Okay. Um, and this is a lot of what actuaries do day to day, right? Um, so so I, I work in consulting, right? And like per definition, if I need to tackle a problem, it's probably because it's a new problem, right? And I need to think about all these issues that the person who's hiring me um, doesn't have the skills or knowledge to think about. Um, and so I need to think about all these extra unknown and, and unspecified and uncertain issues um, to do my job properly. And that's what we're looking for in a good candidate. Um, okay. Let's look at another example. Um, Vuvumets consultants have apparently analyzed the Zila requotation and projected that Vuvumets expected net reinsurance results are, in the longer term, projected to be negative. One of the trustees of Vuvumed has argued that the reinsurance will therefore result in an additional cost to the scheme and is therefore not in the best interest of members. The trustees also express reservations as to whether the regulatory authorities are likely to approve a loss-making reinsurance contract. Zilari's marketing director is concerned that Vuvumed is not approaching its decision on reinsurance in an appropriate manner and has asked for your assistance. Question. Draft an outline of the factors that you would put forward to Vuvumed to consider when evaluating the reinsurance quotation. Okay, so th there's a lot there. Um, the first one is just, you know, if we can answer the question, um, which is that you need to outline the factors. Um, and this is wrong, by the way. It's not the factors you need to consider, factors that you need to tell the client that they need to consider. Okay? Um, and that's why it's important that you read your questions properly and then read them again. Um, okay, so we talked about pray and spray, right? Um, so what do we talk mean here? So that's the stream of consciousness thing. Um, unstructured questions, often in like a bullet point form. Um, and basically, a lot being written, but it's just candidates writing every possible thing that could even remotely be um, related to the question. Um, so basically, you know, they're taking a shotgun at the target which is the question that the examiners asked, and they away, and um, hoping that they'll get some marks. It's not very efficient. Um, and here's an example, right? So a very superficial answer. Um, so, you, you know, you could say, well, yes, high reinsurance costs may be bad for the scheme because high costs will drive up contributions. Members won't like that. The high cost may attract regulatory attention, which is not good. And the scheme already has difficulty meeting its targets, so it is actually very bad. 
and the regulator has not approved any reinsurance contracts for a long time, it's unlikely that it will be approved. So not a good idea. Plus, the scheme's demographics is looking bad. It is making losses, and the reinsurance losses will clearly not help. Okay, so like the second half of the response wasn't even asked. Um, marking this, probably give a half mark, that second bullet, um, and maybe another half mark for the regulator approving reinsurance point, right? Um, and with prey and spray, we often see this, right? So you, like a whole typed page with two tick marks on it. Um, that's, that's clearly not efficient. What you want to do is the more structured solution, right? Um, so I guess, you know, if we're explaining metaphors here, yeah, it's like first off, try to hit the target and go off topic. Use structure, um, right? Because structure groups similar ideas together. Um, and if you think about them, you'll make sure that you cover everything under that heading. Um, th this is the model solution for the same question, right? So um, we need to consider what's in the best interest of members, right? Because that was stated in the preamble. Um, isn't the, ex the expected surplus for the scheme on reinsurance is, you know, the opposite or the equivalent of the expected loss for the reinsurer? It is reasonable for reinsurers to make a profit, right? So the point being made here is that just because you expect that you're going to make a loss on a reinsurance arrangement doesn't mean that it's necessarily um, a bad thing. Um, because if you consider the value of reinsurance, um, so in a context of this question, it was something more like excess of loss reinsurance, right? So what's the point of that? It's to limit the magnitude of the biggest loss that you can take. Um, so the value of the reinsurance here is not that you're going to get money back, it's that you're limiting your exposure to variable claims. Um, okay, so... You can model the aggregate loss or probability of ruin with and without reinsurance. Okay, so with reinsurance, probably smaller variability. Hence, you'll have a higher probability of meeting your solvency targets. Um, and you can quantify the probabilities involved. Um, you know, so what's the probability that I will need my reinsurance? Um, okay. Yes, the scheme would need to lower the price of the reinsurance for the expected reinsurance loss, right? Which, remember, is reinsurance premiums subtracted from any recoveries. Um, okay. Reinsurance may be onerous, given the numbers provided in the preamble. You need to waste, weigh this against the cost you need to weigh this cost against the reduction in uncertainty, right? Um, you may also want to consider whether self-insurance is a viable alternative, 
right? But actually, because of the information that was provided to us in the context of the question, we can tell that self-insurance is probably not a viable option. Okay? So this is the model one. Um, so roughly, um, each um, bold section would attract a mark, right? And obviously this candidate got a lot uh, more marks than the guy with the shotgun. Um, what you also need to take away from here is that, you know, this is something where there's a gray area. Um, okay. Let's talk about some common pitfalls with the exams. Um, and here we're talking about like mistakes that we see again and again and again. Um, the first one is follow, failing to follow directions. Um, right? So a simple one is show your calculation steps and state any assumptions you make. Right? So if you just write down um, premium income will be 186 million rands. Okay? But it was wrong. Um, then you're not getting any marks, right? But if you'd actually stated um, or shown me how you're calculating it based on what information and told me what assumptions that you make, you would have gotten some marks, even though your calculation was wrong. Um, okay. Talk about stating assumptions. Um, there are two kinds of assumptions, right? Now, most of us think about the explicit assumptions. Right, so I'm making an assumption about how variable claims are, right? So the parameters of my statistical distribution, or I'm making an assumption about long-term inflation or long-term investment returns. Okay. Um, the other kind that candidates often miss are the implicit assumptions, right? So let's say I told you that you need to calculate an IBNR using the chain ladder method. Um, there is a mark for telling me that the underlying assumption in this method is that you assume that claim processing is um, happening at a constant speed all the time. Okay? Um, and a lot of people miss that. Right? Another example would be, I calculate like an average amount per family on a medical scheme, um, then I may be assuming implicitly that all families are the same, right? So, you know, a, a, a husband and wife and one and a half children. Um, and that can also lead you to um, make additional points. So, right, if you're making these kinds of assumptions, um, in, under what circumstances could they invalidate your calculation? Um, okay, here's another one. So the direction was, you may assume that Ostrich has access to the negotiated rates and employees' benefits usage data per family for the past year to determine remuneration increases. Um, so the reason this was here was because we didn't want candidates to spend time telling us where they would get the data and how they would source it. Um, yet a lot of people went ahead and did just that, right? 
right down to um, discussing the problems and a, a whole lot of unrelated issues. The last example, you may also disregard any tax implications, the implications on any post-retirement medical aid liability or the remuneration of future appointments. Again, this is a bunch of stuff that I'm telling you don't need to think about, right? So don't waste your time on it. A lot of people don't read the instructions. Um, And there's this part of not doing the role-playing, right? So often a question will say, what's your role here, right? So are you an employee of this financial services company? Are you the valuating actuary on a pension fund? Um, are you peer-reviewing someone else's work? Or are you an external consultant? Um, and in each of those, the implications, right? The implications to what kind of information you have access to, um, who your primary responsibility is to when you're giving advice or giving judgment. Um, so you need to consider that. Um, another example of this would be the scope of a question, right? So did the question specifically limit the response to a specific point of view. So, you know, do you have to focus specifically on policyholders or on the regulators? Or should you, you know, more broadly consider the entire industry? Um, you know, or, or should you even consider the entire country? Um, so an example would be, you know, not just considering private healthcare, but also the public healthcare system in your, in your response. Um, so we had an example of this in, in um, the November health paper. Um, so the very last question presented basically um, two sets of reforms that were planned in this country. Um, and basically a consumer group had come and they said, no, but they think that it will be better if you do like the one package before in, in the reverse order before the other one. Um, and the question was, state whether you agree whether this would be better for consumers, right? So I don't care whether it, how it will impact insurers. I don't care how regulators will, will react. Um, I just wanted to know whether you agree whether this proposal will be better for consumers. Right? So again, don't waste your time discussing other aspects. Um, um, on that note, you know, that question was a, a perfect example of a grey area question, right? So most people answered, yes, it will benefit consumers, or no, it will be bad for consumers. Um, but the model solution actually says, well, for these kinds of consumers, it will be very good, but for these kinds of consumers, it will actually be very bad. Um, and so the conclusion was actually, no, the statement isn't universally true that this will benefit consumers. Um, okay. Another common problem that we this one, why doesn't it work when I stand there? Um, not answering the entire question. Um, so you often get these compound questions, right? So in this example, discourage, 
discuss the merits of the points made by the consultant and state whether you would recommend this course of action to the Board of Trustees. Um, so, you know, people will, may just dive in and they'll do the first part and completely neglect the last part, um, which is a problem because often, like, you know, a valid, well-reasoned conclusion or recommendation could be worth uh, a lot of points. Um, so make sure you answer all the parts of the question. You know, another one was list all the different um, kinds of um, payment methods in private health care and um, then discuss whether they're applicable in this situation. Um, and again, a lot of people listed the, um, the different methods, but then they just didn't discuss. Um, and most of the marks were available for discussing. Um, so make sure that you um, that you do all the tasks in the question. Um, okay, then there's like simple errors. Um, that could be something like accidental inclusion of the word not, right? You meant you should do this, but then you write, no, you shouldn't, you should not do this. Right, which changes the meaning, and I'm going to write. I, I'm going to mark what you wrote. Um, as I said, don't repeat the question. Clearly, number the correct question at the top of the page, um, and stick to conventional wisdom. Right. The exam is not a place to come up with like novel angles to problems. Um, okay. So we expect that when writing actuarial exams, you also demonstrate some of the other qualities that we expect of an actuary, right? So that would be things like considering the public good. Um, does it affect the sustainability of my client? Um, is my client aware of all the risks? Um, right down to even, you know, is this legal? Um, so I'll give you an example. We had a question. where you had to come up with different ways that this medical scheme could um, make sure that its solvency level didn't drop below the statutory limit. Um, <clears throat> and one of the candidates wrote, no, what they should do is they should close the scheme for new business or maybe even try to lose members because that would um, decrease the required solvency level, all other things being equal. So technically, it's correct, right? But as an actuary, that would be very unprofessional advice to give, right? Because you would basically be dooming the, the medical scheme in the long term just to meet this short-term objective of not breaching solvency by the end of the year. Um, so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Um, 
And this could become very relevant in like a borderline case, right? So um, think about that. Okay. Electronic papers. Now, most of you these days do the electronic paper. Um, my first piece of advice is practice using a computer. Right? Um, get a sense of how much is enough when you look at a solution in the typed format. Um, because, like, obviously, you know, there's a difference between a written script and a um, electronic script in terms of the density of the text, right? And where you may have known that, okay, you know, 20 marks is about five pages handwritten, um, you need to be able to judge how much that is for an um, electronic script. Um, you know, but also keep in mind that some of you um, go and edit the template and change fonts. Um, which is fine as long as I can read what you typed, um, but you know, be aware of these kinds of issues. Um, a big issue with um, the electronic papers is you know you can go back and edit. Um, so this is some advantages, right? So you can still have your questions in the order that they were asked in the pa exam paper. Um, but you don't have to answer them that way. You could like set up your headings, go do question three because that's the one you think you'll do the best in, and then go and do back question two. Um, the problem is that um, the temptation is to keep going back to previous questions and you know inserting some more text. Um, be very careful of this because again, it comes to keeping your timetable. Um, right, so in general, if you're copying and pasting like a large number of points, then in one of the places where you have this this text, you're probably you've probably got it wrong. Um, okay, and then for electronic papers, um, you're only allowed to use Word. Okay, so bring your calculator, um, even in F two hundred papers, right? So most of the paper may be very wordy, but it could be something like we present you with an income statement and you need to interpret it. Um, so you need to calculate things like loss ratios and, and those kinds of things. Um, we make this point because there was one exam after we had a lot of papers that were more on the wordy side, and there was a very simple analysis question, and an alarming number of people didn't bring their calculators. And we knew this because they were doing long division in the margins, okay? Um, which is wasting time and um, possibly losing your marks. So, you know, make sure you have an exam regulation calculator, make sure the batteries are new, make sure you know how to use your calculator. Um, and actually bring it. Um, okay, clearly marking your questions on electronic papers, um, <clears throat> this has been an issue, right? So, so which one is, is better here? Um, now marking this 
you know, I'd mark it the same. I'm not penalizing you for the structure. Um, but sometimes it like really isn't clear which part this person is answering. Um, what we've also seen is because it's not clear, someone went back and they wanted to add points to part one or, or part two, right? Um, but they wrote down a lot of valid points under the wrong part, which is just a silly mistake. Um, so it's just, you know, it's a good idea to be clear about which part is being answered. Um, okay, written papers. So um, not always, but written papers tend to be the ones that run out of time. Um, <clears throat> another problem that we see a lot is um, bad handwriting. Right? Um, again, clearly label which part you're answering. So if you've seen the exam booklets, there's the dotted lines at the top of, in the top margin of the page. Right? And you need to, on every page, label that. And when I say label, don't just write, you know, Roman numeral three. Write two in brackets three. Then I know which part you're um, answering. Um, okay. So hand cramps are the last thing you need. Um, A, because it slows you down, and B, because it makes your handwriting uglier. Um, so you need to... If you're going to do the handwritten script, practice writing for three straight hours, um, you know, and writing legibly. Um, so whatever you're comfortable with, as long as I can read it, but keep in mind that, you know, the markers can only give you marks for what they can read. We're not going to guess what you wrote. Um, so, so it's important. Um, if you really have a problem with poor handwriting, um, in my experience, printing when writing fast um, tends to be more legible. Um, okay, and then leave space for additional points if you have time to revisit the question. Because um, that's like the last thing you want, right? You, you fold the page and then went on and you thought of something. Now you come back and what are you going to do? Scribble at the bottom, please turn to page 47. Um, <clears throat> also remember that um, gutter on the left side of the page that says don't write here, don't write there. That's for the markers. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's talk about jargon magic bullets. Um, Sometimes candidates try to be clever, um, and it doesn't work for them, right? Um, <clears throat> so an example would be you need to set up a pricing model, right? So the normal way of doing it and the way that you would get marks would be things like, like okay, so the standard things, collect the data, clean the data, um, but then it would be things like, you know, divide um, the data into risk cells, exposure, and then claims, and that may be by claim type, 
um, then you need to divide to get the average figures, then you'll adjust, and then you'll apply that to your projected exposure figures for the next year. So there, there's like a bunch of marks, right? Um, <clears throat> but then you have a candidate who says, okay, I'll collect the data and all that, um, and I'm going to use a GLM. That's it, right? So, so the issue is that you know maybe if I'm, maybe you'd get a half mark for that. Um, you need to show me that you understand how you would use a GLM in this situation. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, what's your response variable? Um, are those risk cells? Um, that you, that, you know, in the risk cell projection method going to be the kind of prediction factors that you're going to use. Um, you know, and then remember that a GLM basically calculates an expected value. So you're going to get like your projected claim amount and then you have going to have to carry on um, with the projections into the future that the risk cell method had. You, know, you need to show me that kind of detail. Just saying you'd use a GLM and thinking that you're clever isn't going to work. Um, you know, the same with um, the candidate wrote, now I'll use a stochastic model because it's more accurate. Right, so that tells me that you don't understand stochastic models um, and you've probably never actually built one. Um, Right, because there, there are circumstances where they may be more accurate, um, and there are ones where they wouldn't. Right, so so be careful of those kinds of dogmatic statements or using clever jargon. Um, gray areas, right? So in many questions, there's no single right um, answer. Um, you know, it could be. As I said, in those situations where there's some kind of conflict in the scenario, um, it could be a question where you had to come up with a bunch of proposals, right? And some of those proposals are in conflict with each other, um, right? So now you need to say, okay, but you can do that, but then you can't do this. Um, those kinds of things. Um, we are more interested in how you reason, right? And how you justify your views than whether you conclude with yes and no, or I would recommend it, or I wouldn't recommend it. Um, <clears throat> because we're looking for, we're looking to see if you have the problem solving skills and the judgment that we're looking for. Um, sometimes I see candidates who, you know, they start their solution with, I wouldn't recommend this course of action, and then they start writing, like, their analysis. Um, um, sometimes they contradict themselves, right? Um, so, so think through the issues before you make such a judgment. Um, and often, you know, 
I would recommend this course of action is worth half a mark, but like your well-stated re well reason why you would recommend it would be worth more marks. Okay, so again, we want to see that you understand, not just whether you can randomly choose between two binary options. Um, okay, many times, but not always, you could pose both sides of the coin and the arguments for and against both and gain marks on both sides. Um, like we said, you know, it, it depends. Um, okay, other suggestions? Um, as I said, each question on a new page. Um, if you actually go read the instructions on the green front cover of your paper, um, oh, sorry, that's not green, but you know, the, the first page of the exam, that's like an instruction given to candidates. Um, and I really recommend that you do it. Um, Start with the most important points. Show that you know which are important and which aren't. Um, structure your answer. Headings are great to do this, right? But just because you're using headings doesn't mean that you're using the appropriate headings. You need to think about that. Um, get the follow-up marks, right? So don't just make a statement. Sometimes you need to justify it. Um, so get that mark. Um, if your answer to a numerical question <clears throat> demonstrate that you understand that it's wrong and say why. And yeah. Um, okay. Now you can take whatever strategy you want in terms of tackling the questions, but um, we recommend that you do the questions that you feel the most confident in first, right? So um, Christoph, who's the chair of the Board of Examiners, always talks about banking the easy marks, right? Um, so, so really do that. Um, you know, other people may have something that worked for them, like tackling the most difficult questions first. Personally, I don't think that's a good idea, but yeah. Um, as we said, often it's a half mark um, per point. Um, and avoid dogmatic statements unless you can truly justify them. So um, an example here was um, we had a question about remuneration methods for in public uh, private health care, um, which would include things like capitation agreements and um, global fees and fixed fees and um, fee for service. So fee for service is how most doctors and hospitals and pharmacies get paid, right? Um, they did this thing, they charge for the thing and they get paid. Um, and you were all, and the question was whether it's appropriate in a specific situation. And a lot of people just wrote down the dogma. Fee for service is bad, right? Um, but in truth, that wasn't the whole solution we were looking for, right? Because there are situations where it may be the best or only option, like when there isn't data to um, price the other remuneration methods. Um, so avoid dogma. Um, you know, 
A similar thing is making statements like, the regulator would never approve this. Okay? Um, you're basically assuming that the regulator's decisions are cast in stone and that they, um, their minds can never be changed by like a logical and rational argument. Um, so be careful of those kinds of things. Um, other things, practice old questions. So you know, I was a candidate myself. This was in the day when the exams were numbered, things like 301, 302. Um, and I'd sailed through everything, and then I got to life 302. Um, and I knew the core reading by heart, right? You could, like, wake me up in the middle of the night and tell, ask me, you know, say, tell me what's written on the top of page 74 under the third bullet point. Um, and I could. And then, like, a week before the paper, I started working through past papers. And I was like, I'm supposed to know this? And the answer, of course, was yes, right? But because I hadn't practiced, I wasn't prepared. Right? This is an application paper, so you need to practice application. And while you're busy, you need to practice your exam skills. Um, okay, so on this point, one of the things that can happen is if this isn't your first attempt, then you've probably done all the past papers and all the mock exams and all the um, question and answer banks, right? So what do you do now, right? Because the trap is you go through the solution, right? But you didn't apply yourself. You just remembered what the solution was, okay? And that's not what we're looking for, and it's not going to help you. Um, So an exercise that you can do in that situation is to play what if, right? So look at the question, right, and go change a detail, right? And then work out how the solution would have changed um, because of that, and, you know, what the implications would have been, um, because that actually exercises your mind, okay? Another thing, as I said, to go practice deconstructing the question, because if you do that, you'll often see why the marking solution looks the way it does. You know, why did the examiners structure the solution under these headings? Um, things like that. Um, okay, so, you know, there are going to be difficult questions. The pa papers are difficult um, because we have standards. Um, but those really difficult questions, we call them the higher order questions, um, will be difficult for everyone, right? So Because it's normally the high-level analysis, synthesis, evaluation questions, typically on something that you've never seen before, so not the status quo. Um, you should welcome those opportunities, right? Because those are typically the questions where the stronger candidates distinguish themselves. Um, rather than, you know, easy bookwork. Um, okay, know your bookwork, right? So knowing your bookwork won't pass you, 
but not knowing your bookwork may just fail you. Um, I actually had a candidate who would have passed um, if she just finished like a 10 mark bookwork question. And again, that the solution was copied straight from the core reading. Right? That's not a mistake you want to make. Um, okay, so the paper is about applying your knowledge. We don't, we often want to put you in a situation that isn't the status quo. Um, think about the situation, try the role playing, okay, and don't try to learn and apply rote learned recipes. Okay, so back to the, we discussed cookie cutter solutions, right? We'll never set a question where just writing the cookie cutter solution is going to give you all the marks. Um, there's always going to be some kind of twist, right? Um, it could be various things like you only have half a year's of data because it's a new business, or even though it's a medical scheme, you have to now make a long-term projection, right? Which means that you have to add like a bunch of things like mortality rates that healthcare actuaries typically don't think about. Um, that's where the application comes in. That's where you need to consider what the relevant issues are um, and where the normal recipe won't work. Okay, study tips. As I said, optimize your study, leave, right? Um, try to take regular study leave days and make constant progress in preparing. Um, you know, figure out whether morning, afternoon, or like some of you are lucky, the whole day energy hotspot is, right? And like actually study when you're most alert. So I'm a night owl. I don't really start functioning until around noon and the third cup of coffee, right? So I'm not going to take my study leave in the morning. Um, <clears throat> write down your concentration time, right? So every person has a concentration span, right? Where you can like optimally concentrate. Um, and you need to figure out what yours is. Um, there's this thing called the Pomodoro method. Um, it was actually developed more for people with who struggle to focus, right? But the idea is that you have um, like a timer. It's called Pomodoro because of those kitchen timers that look like a tomato. Um, and the idea was you figure out what your focus time is. Let's say it's 45 minutes. So you, you set the timer for 45 minutes and you study. And when it rings, you take a break five minutes, um, and then you do another 45-minute session, right? Repeat three times, then you take a long break, and then you start again. And the idea is that you keep focused um, on the specific task of studying. Um, because I'm sure all of you have had that thing where you've you know, you've reached the stage where you've read the same page three times and you still don't know what's going on. Um, okay. Fitness helps a lot with concentration. Um, you know, also eat right. You know, I, I used to love studying with a Red Bull and a bag of Smarty Mini Eggs. Um, but maybe some 
apples would have done me better. Um, I used to spend my long break um, taking my dog for a walk. Um, it's a nice way to clear your head as well. Um, okay, you need to study hard. There are no shortcuts, right? So for these exams, um, you know, we're talking about preparing requires 200 to 400 hours of studying. But, you know, this is how serious it is, as you should well know. Um, practice under exam conditions, right? So don't just read like the past paper and then work through the um, solution and then say, yeah, I would have gotten that and that and that and that. Because most likely you didn't have, right? That's kind of like saying, um, <clears throat> I watched last year's comrades on TV, so I'm ready to do the uprun this year. It, it just doesn't work that way, um, right? And then study to get 100%, not, you know, 60%. Okay, um, so, so that's my talk. I hope you got some use out of it. Um, what we'll do now is the question and answer session. So, um, does anyone have any questions? Hi, uh, thank you for the presentation. <clears throat> so just your advice or tips for candidates sitting a fellowship exam um, area that they're not practicing in. Sorry, just repeat that last part. Uh, of an area where you're not practicing in, so you don't have practice Oh, experience. right. Okay, so there's no reason why you can't pass that. Um, you maybe need to answer the question of, you know, why am I writing fellowship in an area that isn't the path I want to take my career in? Um, but, you know, it, having experience in that practice area gives you an advantage just because you understand the concepts and you think about them and you work with them every day. Um, but... If you study the core reading and you apply yourself, and especially for candidates whose practice area it isn't, read the additional reading, you're well prepared, you should be fine. Um, uh, but you really need to get your mind into that area that you're writing. Um, so, you know, sometimes we see people writing about premiums in the medical scheme context where the correct word is contribution. So I can see that someone who's not working in that area. Um, so just make sure your head is in the right space. Um, thanks. Um... When you talked about earlier, uh, you talked about moving on when your time budget um, is finished on a specific question. Um, so would you say it's better to attempt all the questions and finish the paper than, than try 
trying to get and, and getting potentially less marks on yeah, each so question that, than and diving into more detail because one of the exa uh, examiner comments there was um, got the core marks but weren't able to expand. Um, so, and also maybe does not answering a certain question automatically lead to a fail? Um, okay, so there's a, there's a lot there. So the moving on thing is not set in stone like things, most things in life. Um, you need to apply your judgment yeah, because it could be that there is um, a simple bookwork question that you can get um, much quicker than the 1.8 minutes per um, point rule. Um, but I really do recommend that you not stick to a specific question. Try to attempt the whole paper right? Candidates who pass tend to attempt all the questions. Um, sorry, there was a last part. Um, does it, would you so, uh, automatically fail if you don't answer all the questions? It depends on the questions, right? Um, so, obviously, you know, if you don't bank those easy bookmarks, then you're already at a disadvantage. Um, and if you have a question that, you know, is for 25 marks, that's a quarter of the paper, and not answering it is going to seriously hurt you, right? Whereas if there's a one-mark question, um, that won't matter as much. Over there. Um, hi. I'm um, just a question about how. Um, what is your suggestion about approaching calculation type questions? If there were to be something like that, if you're typing your um, answers, how do you suggest? Um, right. So as I said, you don't get to use Excel. Um, you're going to do it on paper, right? And you need to do include your calculation steps anyway. The only difference is that you're going to type them um, using a keyboard rather than um, than writing them down. Um, so I'm not suggesting that you use the formula editor in Word, right? But, um, you know, you could just, Let's say you're multiplying two factors together, then you can just have a line. Okay, so, you know, premium income equals um, number of members times average premium per member. Um, as I said, you know, put them in square brackets if it's like a more complex thing that you need to state. Um, as long as it's logical and we can follow it, it's fine. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Um, one of the tips for the grey areas that you that you had was um, um, many of the times you can uh, argue for both sides of the coin. Um, how exactly would we know that? Would it state in a 
specific question that you should only argue the one side or um okay so this is a difficult one on an f200 level that this is where you need to apply your judgment right um as i said you could you can often see that in a question where there's some kind of conflict in the scenario presented to you right so that old problem of um you know sales as their foot on the petrol and underwriting as their foot on the brake um so you'd, you'd you need to be able to judge that and i guess the best way to do that is to go go look for past um exam questions that had those kinds of um solutions and um you know look for the clues uh sorry almost almost like the um the preamble or whatever will sort of guide you in that direction yes so that well this is a small company that needs yeah. to expand so sales maybe gets the the, the greater focus or yeah okay. So how do you know how much detail is required um, under those headings that you um, Okay, so no, no hard and fast answer. Um, as I, you know, you need to take that top-down approach, right? So first make sure you have all the headings, right? Um, and then add as many points under each that is relevant until you get close to something like the mark allocation. Would you also suggest scaling down maybe the amount of detail depending on how important the point is? Yes. You know, that's the kind of judgment we're looking for is whether you can tell what's important and what's not. And secondly, um, I noticed with some solutions, cost papers, they sometimes just take the obvious. Sometimes they don't. So when do you know when you get marks for stating? Okay, so we, we, um, when we talked about that, remember we said it depends on the audience, right? So let's say we were saying outline the main points that you would include in your presentation to the board of directors, right? Um, you would assume that the board of directors may have a very different level of knowledge compared to the layman or you know a peer group of other actuaries, right? So that's where the stating the obvious comes in. Um, when we're just talking about like the the concepts that we work with a lot, the other part of stating the obvious is just that. You know, you may just, it's obvious to you, this would be a bad idea, okay? But you can gain more marks by explaining why it would be a bad idea, even though everybody you know and work with would immediately know that it's a bad idea.
a friend again. Um, in F203, um, there's basically one chapter on Sam, um, and it obviously goes a lot deeper than that. Um, so how much Sam knowledge is expected, um, because I'm finding it difficult to, right. <laughs> to go okay. seven years back <laughs> and start there and, and work through everything. Um, okay, so um, assuming that you're studying from the latest version of the notes, um, it's the duty of the examiners to examine the entire syllabus, right? Um, so in healthcare, I often get the question like, you know, most of us work in medical schemes, why do you, do you keep asking post-retirement um, valuation questions? Um, and the reason is because it's in the syllabus. Um, so, yeah, if it's there, then you're expected to know it. Anybody else? Come on, last chance. Right, so um, seeing that there are no more questions... Um, I'd wish you luck, but as I said, that's meaningless. Um, I hope that your preparations go smoothly. I hope that you'll be clear-headed on the day. You'll be prepared, that you'll be well-equipped. Um, you know, so bring your calculator and bring a spare pen. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, just keep calm and do your best. Okay. Thank you.